This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump, spelled J-M-P, is an easy-to-use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag-and-drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with DataViz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and communicating results. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I'm excited for this week's episode because I have a graphic designer on the show who is interested in how graphic designers work with code, which I know listeners of this podcast are always interested in hearing more about. So I'm very pleased to have uh, this week Rune Madsen on the show who is doing some very exciting work and writing a new book on uh, programming design systems. Uh, Rune, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Um, I'm very excited to have you on uh, the show because I've been reading your book that's coming out sort of chapter by chapter online for free, which is awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. Listeners of the show probably know I'm a big fan of free stuff, so I'm enjoying the free stuff for now, and I'm looking forward to having the physical copy in my hands and some sort of <laughs> gorgeous, designed, heavy, good paper in a year or so or whenever it comes out. Um, but let's start maybe with having you talk a little bit about yourself and, and the work that you've done. Um, and then we'll talk maybe about a little bit about projects you've been working on, and then we can, we can talk about the book. Sure. Well, so I, I normally describe myself as, I think about myself as a designer. Mm-hmm. Um, but besides like using traditional design tools, I also tend to dabble quite a lot in programming languages. <laughs> so like using programming languages to make systems of design. So like what happens instead of thinking of a design product as a one-off that you make in a static tool, like what happens when you write software and systems that produces designs. And that's kind of the overall thing uh, that weaves in between my professional work and my artwork. Um, So maybe a little bit of background. I'm from Copenhagen, Denmark, a little north of Copenhagen, Denmark, and moved to New York in 2009 to study at this weird art and technology program at New York University called uh, the Interactive Telecommunications Program. Um, So that's kind of a weird art tech program that takes a bunch of different people from the arts and all kind of different fields and throw them into a program um, and teach them programming and physical computing. So that's really my background. Uh, I've been at the New York Times. I've been at O'Reilly Media for a couple of years doing research and development. And now I'm actually back at ITP as a professor and a full-time researcher while doing this book I'm writing. So... Do you not like the title graphic designer? Do you have your own title that you've developed? It's very hard. Like on my website, I write multimedia artist, but that's mostly because the stuff I, I, is more of the art stuff I put on my website, but I call myself uh, a graphic designer. Mm. Um, We can talk later about what's problematic about that field and in education specifically about my book. But um, like I say, graphic designer, but then I also very quickly after that mentioned programming languages <laughs> to make people know that I'm kind of like I and the, I've had that with employers too where they ask me to describe myself mm. and 
very un-Scandinavian of me, I have to like explain, well, I feel very comfortable as a, as a designer, but I've been programming my whole life and do like full stack, front end, back end, right. native and embedded systems. So I'm both very technical and very design focused. Right, right. We'll certainly come to the education side and sort of how people view, I think, graphic design. I mean, I think you make a good point that I think a lot of people hear the word or the phrase, the title graphic designer, and they're like, oh, you're probably good at Illustrator and Photoshop, but there's a lot more to it. And, and clearly that's some of the work you've been doing. Um, maybe we could talk about some of the projects that you've done. Um, as I was scrolling through, looking through your website, I found the Tiny Artist Project really cool. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that one and maybe you have a couple others that are your, you know, maybe your personal favorites that, that you want to talk about. Of course. Well, so the Tiny Artist Project is kind of an umbrella for many different kinds of projects. So there's uh, seven iterations of it now. Uh, but the common theme is that it's these small computer programs that I write um, that uh, when you run them, they generate graphic designs and print them directly on a professional printer. And then they delete the digital files and delete their own source code. So mm -hmm. what the only thing that's left are the actual prints. Uh, and it's something that came about, came about because I think a lot about like the designer as more an art director. So it's not so much... A designer sitting down and making something, but a designer making a system that makes something. Mm -hmm. And then the, if you follow that to the full consequence of things, it's like, who is really the designer here? If I write a piece of software that has some kind of randomization in it and I run it, have I designed it or has the program designed mm -hmm. it? So that's why that I think that project is re really interesting. So um, I show these prints at galleries. Every piece of software prints nine posters to show the variance of what it can do. And then uh, it kind of deletes itself. Uh, also, as like a fun comment on originality in digital art. Mm. So like you can always print a new thing, but if you don't have the software and don't have the files, you can't do it. Right. So it's kind of like a fun, playful, artistic approach to the stuff I otherwise work with in like professional environments. It's like distilling design thinking into software. But does the, does the coding part of your life sort of cringe when the code gets deleted at the end? Right. Like, <laughs> like I'm always like, that's my big fear that I'm going to code something. I'm going to run it. And then, you know, I won't have saved it and the thing will crash and I'll have to re like, does that part of your brain just cringe when you're like, okay, well, I'm going to delete, you know, I have this goal, but yeah, I'm still deleting code. Well, that's the fun thing about it, right? That it becomes <laughs> like the prints become much more precious yeah. because you can't really, you can't, you can't remake them. It. Yeah. And they have like, when you run them, there's like inherent loss that comes just from the randomization. Mm. Like some of them uh, are prints. Uh, I've shown, uh, other iterations of the project on like in Brazil on this huge building covered in LEDs that ran for three weeks that used machine learning to constantly evaluate whether the designs were right or wrong. Um, but the posters are a little bit more dumber. So they just like randomly generate based on random variables, uh, some different designs. And when you look at the outputs, like there are things I would change, but I cannot change them yeah. because I'm not in control. So yeah, I definitely, there's, there's a moment of um, not having control over the entire design process yeah. and letting the computer decide and then not the ability to making changes, which right. is interesting. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any other, you know, favorite little, you know, favorite little projects that you want to talk about? Um, well, I do a lot of interesting like projection work also. Yeah. It's been a, f a few years, but I've done um, like projection work for a few Danish artists. And also, so this thing I showed in Brazil was this huge, three-week-long 
project of projecting interactive art and generative art on a building. So besides my print work, um, there's a lot of like interactive physical installation work that is hard to explain in audio, but <laughs> it's like much more immersive than the, I think people come to my website and see my graphic design work and wants to like buy a poster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also tend to do much more interactive work, like both on the web, but also um, for physical installation and musicians yeah. and so on. Very cool. Great. Well, um, I'll put links on the on the show page. People want to check out some of the work, but um, I want to turn over to the book. The book is Programming Design Systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going chapter by chapter, all open source, open, open, open. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to start by giving us a sense of both why you're writing the book, what you're trying to accomplish, and also why you're writing it in this open way. I mean, I think that's sort of the new thing that people are doing now, and I'm I'm curious about why that's the path that you chose for this project. You bet. So maybe to that last question, the, the reason why I'm doing it in the open is that I've worked a lot in publishing. I was the creative director at O'Reilly Media. Mm. I think publishers do good things, but I think it's questionable when you're a person who is technical, can design your own things and write your own things. The cut that a publisher takes from your revenue, it is questionable whether that actually delivers the equal amount of value. Mm-hmm. So. I think the time where I realized that was when I realized that my if I chose a publisher and I was speaking to a few of them for this book, they wouldn't even help me do like licensing and copyright issues around use of images. I would need to do all of that myself right. and so on. My wife is an editor, so it just seems like a really good thing to do on my own. Yeah. I've been doing these open source publishing tools for a while. I'm working on a tool called the Magic Book Project that I'm using uh, to produce my book. So... In general, it's just like a nice way to put things out of the open. I'm financed by NYU as a researcher. And also, it gives me the ability to not go away in a room for a year and then yeah. come out with a full book, right. but to meet my audience and my readers, get input. And I've heard from a ton of people and received a ton of, uh, of edits from them. So it's just a much more lively, connected way of, of doing a book, I think. Yeah. So maybe to the first point about the book. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, So I call myself a graphic designer, right. and I've been thinking a lot about graphic design and new design products the last couple of years. And I think what's problematic about the term graphic design is that people immediately imagine static design products like posters and logos and so on. But the problem is that the world we live in has drastically changed, and the products that were required to build has also drastically changed. Data visualization is one of those products, but mobile applications and even like simple things like logos are now becoming dynamic and iterative and so on. So I think it's problematic in graphic design education that like we have a tendency to think about designers as ideators who are completely detached from the process of implementing something. And I really want to push to that. So uh, so data visualization is a good example of that. If you just consider the designing of a data visualization as something that can happen in Illustrator, you are immediately only thinking about prettifying something when everybody who's done a data vis knows that it requires time spending code to knowing the data to kind of find a representation that fits that data set. And that's a thing that can you might be able to do it in a graphic interface like Tableau or something like that. But programming languages are right now the most like powerful ways of doing that. So the book is like a foundational graphic design text about the foundations of graphic design, form, color, typography, 
and so on, but using a programming language as the tool instead of Photoshop and Illustrator. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, I mean, there's a lot of things to say say yeah. about that, but but yeah, that that's the main goal. So it's not only about what they can build if they program, but that's obviously a big thing about it. Like once you can program, you're not stuck in these static design tools where you have to prototype static pages. Mm -hmm. And I've been in a lot of digital design teams where like, the problem is that we live in this world where designers are asked to do, let's just take a website. Designers are asked to do a website and they deliver these static mockups and then the technical people look at them and like, okay, we have to weave this together. Then we've found this group of people called UXers to kind of glue yeah. all that together with motion. The thing that really dictates the success of a program is not so much only the look, but the way it feels, how right. it uses motion and so on. So I think my idea is that, that designers need to be able to prototype those things to survive in this new digital reality. Yeah. I think the website example is a great example. So you have the, the designers, the traditional, let's say, graphic designers over here, and you have the, the web developers or the UI, UX people over here. And let's just say you had a team of two doing that. In your mm -hmm. ideal world, would you still have a team of two where both, are, both of those groups are sort of moving towards each other, or would you ultimately just have a team of one where one person does everything? Well, this is where it gets dangerous because people think that I, I'm of the everyone should program yeah. uh, generation, and yeah. that's really not what I mean. Um, I don't think that it's specifically that every designer should be able to program. Uh, but I do think that we need to bridge that gap. Yeah. So I would actually, like, we should encourage people to specialize in things. So I would have a programmer and I would have a designer. But if there's no shared language between them, it's very problematic. Yeah. And the teams I've seen work the best is where it's not only the vocabulary that is shared, but the, it's the assets that they work on that is shared. So if you can have a design style guide that is implemented in code that the designer can work on and the programmer can work on, that just makes for the best collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people come to me like, I, you know, I have this 200-page report. Can we get, you know, an online visualization tool can we get it by the end of the day and it's like right no building this stuff is hard no one asked you to write a paper a 200 page paper by the end of the day so this stuff is hard yeah um you know building these teams of designers and researchers and developers i think is the exact way that i like to think about it um mm -hmm. so you said you don't think that everybody needs to code but mm -hmm. do you think that everybody needs to at least appreciate or have some understanding of what it takes to code and if so would you sort of have everybody, you know, everybody has to take one semester of R or Fortran or maybe not Fortran. Okay. Maybe not Fortran, but you know, <laughs> you know, everybody has to, you know, at least for some part of their, you know, some part of their education, they have to dive into some code and understand what it means to think like that. I definitely think that everyone should at least learn, like see code and know what it is to become just at least a little bit proficient in it. That or we need to reinvent our design tools so they are built on a workflow that makes sense for the people who need to implement uh, a real piece of software. I always tell when I talk to my students in the first class, I say, I pull up Google.com and I say, like, look at this. If you think of the design of Google.com in something like Illustrator, then it's just the colors of the border of the input yeah. field. But that's not the design of Google.com. The design of Google.com is the interaction and conversation with the algorithm yeah. that um, designers will need to prototype 
so yeah, I mean, programming is the only way to really get into that right now. Mm -hmm. There are, and I'm running at NYU, I'm running a research group with a fellow researcher called Patrick Hebron um, called Intelligent Design, which is a research group focused on making new design tools with machine learning to kind of figure out how can we have designers build complex systems without necessarily needing to write all the algorithms. Um, but so yes, it's either having everyone introduced to programming languages, which I try to do in my book in a way that's very focused on design, because I think the problem is we tend to teach programming languages as a hard skill yeah. and people want to learn programming language through a soft skill. So all my focus in my book is on the design parts, um, but then using programming language to do that. So we need to do that or either we need to reinvent our tools, but that's also a larger conversation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> So then by uh, extension, if we think that people need to learn how to code, do you think people also need to learn more about design principles? I think so. Uh, I've been a lot in web development. And I think what happens in a lot in web development is that there's a lot of really savvy technical people that tends to, if designers don't kind of enter the domain of the web developer, design just happens without designers. Yeah. And the way the focus in web development right now is it happens a lot in a vacuum where they think everything that is invented, for example, thinking about design systems has been a big thing last year of making living style guides and so on and defining brands in, in, in style guides. And people, like if you look at the graphic design history, rules and systems is not a new thing. We've been doing it for hundreds of, hundreds of years if you think about it as uh, like the New York City subway system, or just what we call branding is the same, defining simple rules that go towards uh, uh, many different outlets. Um, so if we don't have designers kind of come into the domain of the technical people, technical people will just do <laughs> design without design without thinking. Design, yeah. and, and, and I think that's a problem. And now I, I, I tend to talk about this as designers and technical people. I just want listeners to know that I... I don't see that gap at all, yeah, but yeah. it does happen in the workplace. Though. No, ab absolutely. And I mean, I think part of why it happens in the workplace, um, speaking from personal experience, uh, you know, some of it is cultural. You have people coming from different backgrounds. They've gone through school in different ways, different ways of thinking, different levels of expertise. Another part of it is because there are specializations that happen. You know, yeah. you know, someone has a job, they have to do these 15 projects. And so they have to concentrate on the task for those 15 projects. And so there's a little bit of that as well. Exactly. Um, you talked a little bit how the book sort of uh, starts and talks about some design principles of color and font and layout. You, you want to walk us through the plan, the broader plan for the book as you, as you go? Go ahead. You bet. Forward. Yeah. So I've, right now I've written um, some of the chapters in two parts of the book. The first part is called shape and it's all about how to use basic shape, more complex shapes to, create meaning with with shapes instead of in text mm -hmm. um the next the chapter i'm or the part of the book i'm working on right now is called is on color and trying to understand how can you computationally and algorithms generate color schemes that are harmonic or and so on but then as we go along there's a part on typography there's one on layout and then as we go further along it'll be more and more things that are like affected by programming languages. There's a whole mo motion chapter where it's like how to do animations and e-syncs and so on to create meaning. Uh, there's a 
chapter on repetition patterns and like patterns that repeat aperiodic patterns that never repeat and so on and so it's like 10 different parts with five to seven chapters in each part so there's a lot of things to write (laughs) Uh, but i think one important thing to say about that is that every part of the book starts with in um, a short overview of the history of design for that specific part which Mm -hmm. is very important to me to bridge that gap to what we're doing today. Um, so there's a whole history of color theory in the color part and so on. Again, the target audience for the book is graphic designers who want to become more familiar with code. And also I would suspect web developers who want to become more familiar with design. But are you writing it for like someone like me? I mean, I'm reading it anyways because, because anyways, but like, uh, for someone who's not really doesn't really have experience on either side, but who I would argue should have at least an understanding or an appreciation of both sides, is mm-hmm. it something that you know someone who doesn't have design or doesn't have web programming experience can they jump in or you know dive into the book and learn those topics and and come out with it with something that they can apply and do? I think so. There are very simple examples that go throughout the book. So even though you're not super experienced in any of these fields, you should be able to follow along. Um, there's also quite a bit of stuff that doesn't involve code, like speaking about the, like not critical theory, but speaking about the implications of programming languages. Mm-hmm. And as we go along, there'll be interviews with people in the field and so on. Um, so definitely there is one, like the book starts with an anticipation that the reader has done a few tutorials in JavaScript in mm-hmm. p5.js, which is what I use for the book. Um, so that would be one thing where every reader would need to kind of go, I have a link to YouTube videos someone should see before diving into the book. Um, but I really try to make it both a book that is practical, but also something that speaks to kind of the, how does this relate to the world? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, before we go, I want to touch back on the point you made earlier about getting people to comment uh, send you edits and suggestions. What Can you talk a little bit about how that, that interaction and that process has gone in doing this open world where, yeah, you're not locked away in a room for a year and you come out with, ah, but you know, you're, <laughs> you're, you're having this interaction. What is, what is that like? You bet. Um, well, so I run a mailing list or a newsletter that right. people can sc- subscribe to on the website. And that's the primary channel. I think the secondary channel is Twitter, but uh, so people can sign up for the newsletter before uh, going public with the chapter, I send it out to everyone on the mailing list to kind of get their feedback. And I hear from at least like five to 10 readers for every chapter coming mm-hmm. back with edits. Some people, because there's a link to the GitHub repo where all this is stored. Some people just send edits directly and pull oh, requests get, on yeah. GitHub. Many people come back with, oh, I didn't understand this. I didn't understand that. And what I've been most surprised by is like many people come back as experts telling me how things actually work. Yeah. So for example, with there are a lot of things that I know but don't know in detail. Color theory is a highly complex right, thing. Yeah. Digital yeah. color theory and color spaces and color profile. And I spoke to at least a few people who really knew their stuff. So I think that's the best thing there's and that has been the most surprising thing, this pool of experts that are just willing to give their time to yeah. to send me edits. Um, so, yeah, I send it out to the mailing list. I get feedback. Then I post it um, for more public consumption on Twitter. Yeah, the edits yeah. roll in. That's cool. Um, and you don't have your own calendar set up, right? You're just writing all the time and just putting them out as as you 
feel that they're ready to go out? Yes, I am. I, I, so I'm teaching also and I yeah. do some presentation and a little bit of consultant work. So uh, I try not to force myself into a schedule, but I'm publishing at least hopefully a couple of chapters a month in 2017. So Wow. It's a good long haul. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it looks great. And so, and then at the end, we'll have a hardcover that we can hold in our hands at some point, right? Um, Hopefully, yes. Yeah. I'm hoping to do a Kickstarter because I want to do it not print on demand, but do a real printing okay. press, yeah. nice book that is bound and looks beautiful. Awesome. So Awesome. I'm sure it will be. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. It's nice to sort of have these chapters fed to you every week or so to have something new to read and, you know, not feel like there's this huge book on my nightstand that I have to get to. So, right. um, Rune, the, the book is great. Um, programming design systems. Um, I think everyone should really take a look, especially if you're in design or web programming or data visualization or working with data, which is pretty much everyone who listens to this show. I, th I think it's going to be a great, uh, I think it is already a great resource, but it'll be great when it all comes together to take people all the way through. So, um, Rune, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really interesting. Thank you very much. Uh, great. And everyone, thanks for tuning into this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. So until next time, this has been the Policy of This Podcast. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Policy Viz Podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump, spelled J-M-P, is an easy-to-use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag-and-drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with DataViz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and communicating results.